have been in a series walking through, uh, written in red is what the series has been called, and we've been talking about controversial things that Jesus said. And we've been talking about the importance of understanding context, that if I took one line, one sentence, one uh, phrase that you said, and I used that to tell someone about you, it wouldn't probably be give them a very good picture of who you were, what you were like, or especially what you even meant if I just said, here's one sentence, right? But we like to do that in our faith. We like phrases that look good on a T-shirt or on a bumper sticker or on a magnet, or we like to stencil them on the walls of our house. And sometimes that works because it has a given context that we can understand, but oftentimes it doesn't. And then sometimes we walk through the scriptures and we see things and they seem shocking because we don't understand the context. So in the last couple of weeks, we've tackled things like if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And uh, we talked about how many people wore eye patches in the scriptures, right? Everyone's looking at me like, what? Yeah, yeah, there's not a lot of talk about eye patches. So what in the world happened? And so last week we talked, we talked about that. Um, a couple weeks ago we talked about hating your mother and your father. And what in the world is Jesus talking about uh, there? We talked about uh, salt losing its saltiness and being thrown on the manure pile. And that was fun stuff. And so we've had, we've had a good time walking through some radical and seemingly controversial things that Jesus said. And that makes today seem kind of strange because we're talking about today something that it probably would look good on a t-shirt. It might look great on a bumper sticker. It's the kind of thing that, that you're like, oh, this doesn't seem that controversial. I'm actually excited about it. Because I believe oftentimes we don't really understand what is implied and meant there, but it's a great soundbite. And so today I want to talk about Jesus muttering three words as he hung on the cross. He said, it is finished. It is finished. Now, I got to be honest with you. Up until last night, I was planning on taking us through all seven phrases that Jesus shared on the cross. But then I realized I had about an hour and 45 minutes worth of things. And I was like, you will not come back next week, and it's Easter if I hold you for an extra hour and 45 minutes today. And so, uh, so I had this epiphany. That seven things that Jesus shared on the cross is not a message, it's a series. And so I started looking at my calendar, and I'm pretty sure in Easter 2018, that's what we'll be talking about. And so it's going to take me a while to get it right, so... Uh, we'll be, I'll be spending some time working on that in the near, uh, not so near future. But uh, isn't that funny? Sometimes you look and you go, all right, Jesus, we got time. We're going to talk through all the things that you shared. And so, so anyways, I was thinking about this idea of the cross. It's been in my head all week and then having literally taken a cross down this week. And uh, I've been thinking about it. And I've been thinking about how powerful of a symbol it is. I was thinking about how wild it is that the overarching symbol of our faith is a Roman torture device. If we were to interview you and say, give me, when you close your eyes and you hear Christian or you hear Jesus, what is the symbol that you would think of? I would wager that most of you within one or two would come up with cross. Some of you may throw the fish in there because, you know, you've seen a lot of bumper stickers. But, but, uh, but uh, ultimately, many of you would come up with a cross. I was thinking that probably 2,000 years ago, it would seem absurd culturally to glorify and be excited about the image of a cross. To say that's, that's the thing we want to put on our house of worship. In our context, it might be if I, if I up on the roof over here just mounted a giant wooden electric chair. 
Wouldn't that seem absurd? It would cause questions because it would be renownedly understood by us that that was an inappropriate symbol of death and execution for a criminal. And why would you associate it with worship? Yet, 2,000 years later, the cross. And we think about the cross and we think about power, victory, wholeness, restoration, healing. All of these words were not words that would have been associated with a cross 2,000 years ago, but they do mean something today. Why do they mean something today? Because Jesus took something, a symbol, and while he was there, he muttered some words that would have been pretty controversial in that time. And this changed everything. Jesus said, it is finished. I don't want to be overly gruesome this morning, but I wanted to think a little bit about, as we, we're in the Passion Week now, right? And, and, and let me be honest with you. Today is Palm Sunday. Um, we're not doing a service on Good Friday, so this is, for some of you who are more used to a traditional week, this is going to feel a little more Good Friday-ish than Palm Sunday. Some of you are like, man, where's the palm branches? We're not cheering. Um, next year, we'll do that, right? Read it. It's awesome. It's fun stuff. I tried to get Pastor Chris to bring some palm branches from Mexico with him, but he couldn't get them in his, his, his carry-on, and so it didn't work out. But, uh, <laughs> but I'm thinking about the nature of the cross. And uh, I'm going to read to you a description. Um, Jim Bush Bishop, he is an author. He wrote The Day That Christ Died. He conveyed the horror of an execution on the cross. This is a quote. He said, The executioner would lay the crossbeam behind Jesus and brought him to the ground quickly by grasping his arm and pulling him backwards. As soon as Jesus fell, the beam was fitted under the back of his neck, and on each side, the soldiers quickly knelt down on the inside of his elbows. The thorns would have pressed against his torn scalp. With his right hand, the executioner probed the wrist of Jesus to find the hollow spot. And when he found it, he took one of the square-cut iron nails, raised the hammer over the nail, and brought it down with force. Two soldiers grabbed each side of the crossbeam and then lifted as they pulled up, they dragged Jesus by the wrist. With every breath, he groaned. When the soldiers reached the upright, the four of them began to list the crossbeam higher until the feet of Jesus were now off the ground. With the crossbeam set firmly, the executioner knelt before the cross, and two soldiers would hurry to help, and each one take hold, taking hold of a leg at the calf. The ritual was to nail the right foot over the left. This was probably the most difficult part of the work. If the feet were pulled downward, and the nail would close to the foot of the cross, the prisoner would always die quickly. So over the years, the Romans learned to push the feet upward on the cross so that the condemned man could lean on the nails and stretch himself up to breathe. End quote. It's a pretty horrible, tragic scene of what was happening to our Savior. Many of the folks close to him had fled, they'd fled into the crowd or they'd fled home. A few had managed to work their way close but were somewhat silently standing. And in the midst of this, Jesus says several things. If you have your Bibles, you can go to John 19. I'll put it on the screen for you. And I want to talk about what is happening in this moment and why it's so controversial. John 19, chapter 19, verse 25, reads as follows. It says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother 
his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, the disciple took her into his home. How amazing that there's no circumstance that can cause Jesus to not be concerned about us. In the midst of that moment, he's concerned still for, okay, that's a whole other thing. Um, Verse 28, and it says later, knowing that all was now completed. And so the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. Man, there's some powerful stuff there. I don't know if you're familiar with the hyssop plant. It, it shows up in the scriptures a few times, but the first time it shows up is actually in Exodus chapter 12, and it's uh, among the plague of the firstborn. They use the hyssop plant to dip it in blood and to, to wipe over the, uh, uh, the door frames so that the angel of death would pass by, and... and and it's connected here to this moment, to the death of the firstborn again. I, I just think that's powerful and poignant that, that it shows up again. We haven't seen it for a long time. But they took a stalk of the hyssop plant. They lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, here it comes, verse 30, Jesus says, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. God, I just want to be... Uh, appropriately reverent and moved by the power of love on display. I pray it would change us, soften our hearts, and make us new. In Jesus' name, amen. See, between nine and noon, Jesus spoke three times. Then noon happened, and darkness came over the land, and he didn't speak for three more hours before he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then a series of events happened. He says he thirsts. They bring him a very bitter vinegar wine. He takes a drink and rejects it. And then it says he looks up to heaven and he says, it's finished. He bowed his head, verse 30, and he gave up his spirit. Three words. It is finished. Now, what's interesting is that's in the Greek, it's only one word. So I've kind of misspoke so far today saying that Jesus said these three words because in the Greek he said one word that we translate into three words. The word is, um, it's in Greek, so I'm going to butcher it, but it's tetelestai. Now tetelestai is a powerful word. It's an important word in their culture. It shows up in the Greek culture time and time and time and time again. We see it very seldom through the scriptures, but it was a conversational, normal, powerful, important, significant word. Tetelestai. It is finished. Why would it be so controversial to say this on the cross in this moment? As he departs the earthly plane in his fleshly body to say it is finished. Why would it be so controversial, Pastor Mike, for him to say that? Well, let me explain the root and meaning of this word that would have been so surprising for those nearby to hear. I'm going to give you three kind of angles at what this word would have meant in their culture, and all of them are incredibly significant for us. The first is this. The word tetelestai literally meant our debt has been paid. It had a financial connotation to it, that he had paid our debt. Let me talk about how cool it is when your debt gets paid. All right, I don't think I need to talk about that. Most of you 
immediately got excited at the prospect, maybe, or at the remembrance of a time when your debt got paid. In that culture, in that time, when someone took a loan and was indebted to someone else, there would be a record of that transaction. There would be like a contract written up, not so unlike what we might see if someone lent us something, we'd have to sign on a contract. And that copy of that contract would be held by both parties. And when that contract was completed, when that debt was paid, when the amount lent was returned in full, the word that would get stamped on that contract was the telestai. It's finished, paid in full. You no longer owe this outstanding debt. Now that's pretty powerful. For Jesus, in his final minutes and moments, in a final declaration that John wants us to hear, to say, to Telestai, the debt is paid. Woo! All of a sudden, things got a little more controversial, didn't they? I was thinking about the, the, the most powerful debt payment moment of my life so far. We were, uh, we were in Spokane, Washington. We were youth pastors, and we had bought our first home, which was pretty exciting. We bought it in December. Um, if you know anything about Spokane in December, it's snowing and cold and miserable. And uh, we were moving into our house, and we were moving out of uh, a friend's basement. And so it was a massive upgrade. It was the first house we ever bought. It was awesome. Uh, we got into the house, and our whole world changed. We went from not paying anything to live somewhere to paying a lot for us to live somewhere. Uh, we were living for free in a, in a basement, you know. We went for the first time in our whole lives. Um, we were, I was full-time doing ministry stuff, which was amazing. Um, and so I had only one job. Uh, that, that hasn't happened too many times in my life. And, and so that was pretty awesome uh, to experience that. My wife was working also full-time. And uh, we moved in December. And it was crazy. It was Christmas. It was a new place. It was a new town. It was a new job. It was a new house. It was amazing. It was exciting. It was great. And in the midst of all of that, something happened. We missed a car payment. We didn't like intentionally go, we're not paying for the car this month. We literally just missed the car payment. Somehow in a new address, in a new place, it was it just in the shuffle of Christmas and all the newness and all the crazy things, it just got missed. So January rolls around and we just make a car payment. February comes around and we just make a car payment. Remember, we missed December. March comes around and we make a car payment and I get a notice in the mail saying that we are more than 90 days delinquent on our car payment. And I go, what are you talking about? I go, January, February, we paid it, we paid it. And I realized, oh, we missed in December. But they never applied anything backwards. They just said, you missed December and you made all the other payments. So I got a notice that I had, I believe it was 30 days to pay the note in full or they would repossess our car. I was like, are you kidding? And now we had been paying on this car. You know, it was a car we bought in college. It wasn't like a great car or anything, but it was all we had. Now, you got to know, after three months of, the, of, of living in a, in a house for the first time, we're out of college. We don't have any kids yet, but, but we don't have any margin, okay? We're just like stretched on faith, living, we're eating, you know, whatever we can eat. There is no way we owe about $1,200 on this car. There is no way in 30 days we're coming up with $1,200. It's just not. I mean, maybe, you know, I could donate a kidney on the black market. I'm not sure. It's just not. It wasn't. It wasn't going to happen, though, right? There was no way that it was going to happen. And I remember now, I, I, you know, I'm just going to be honest here. I didn't, I, 
I never was the guy that would ask for help, but I was in a position where I needed some help. So I called home. You know, here I am with my tails between my legs. I'm like, Dad, I did something dumb. <laughs> and I missed a payment. And I don't know how it happened. I never got any notice until it was already past due, but we got 30 days and we're out of here. And I remember, I'll never forget him saying, you know what? You're doing everything to help yourself. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you. I'm just going to pay it. I was like, no, 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 I just, you know, I'll pay you back. Like, we'll set up whatever. I'll do. He's like, no, 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 I'm just going to pay. No, 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 I don't need you to just, I, if you could just pay it so they don't take my car. Otherwise, I'm going to have to park it in the garage and, like, camp out there and, and be that guy, right, watching for the tow truck to go around. I just don't want to do that, but, but please. And he's like, no, 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 I'll pay it. You don't owe me anything. I'll just, I'll take care of it. And I'll never forget the an incredible flooding sense of relief that there was a debt that I couldn't pay. I didn't have a way to do it. There was nothing. I mean, I was at my max already, just trying. I was doing everything I could do. There was no way I could do it on my own. And all of a sudden, it was taken care of. The incredible flood of relief and the sense of hope again. And here's us, living this life, understanding, here's Jesus saying, there is a debt. God knows that we could never have gotten paid off on our own. We could never have just managed it. We could never have just figured it out. And all of a sudden, the God of the universe orchestrates a plan. Our good father orchestrates a plan to get you and me out of debt. That's amazing. And Jesus says to tell us that. I remember... I don't know if you've ever seen any of the Dave, Dave Ramsey stuff before, whether you think he's good or crazy or not. Uh, what I, one of the things I like that he does is he does this thing when he helps people get out of debt. And when they get out of debt on his radio show, people call in. And they, they, they've managed to pay off whatever the debt is that they were holding over their head. And they've managed to get out from under it. And he has this thing where he has them do a scream that says, I'm free, and they scream it, and they record it, and they play it on the radio. You can Google it. It's all over YouTube, all these different ones. It's really cool to just listen. He's trying to interview them, and they don't care. They're just so excited, right? And he calls it the debt-free scream, the debt-free scream. And I was listening to some of them this weekend. It's pretty funny, and these guys, I mean, he's like trying to interview them, and they're like, oh, we're out of debt. He's like, well, how'd you do it? We got out of debt. He's like, how'd you do it? Just, they're just so excited. We got a car paid off. We got a thing. We're out. We're free. We have never been like this before. Our marriage is so much better. And he's trying to interview them, and they're not even listening, and they're just so excited. He's like, well, let me hear you scream. And they're just, they get on the phone, they're just like, ah, I'm free. And it's exciting, and it's joyful, and there's energy. And that's the implication of when a debt gets paid off. And for someone in this position, in this place, to scream out, the debt is paid off. That's pretty controversial. It's amazing. It's encouraging. It's exciting to bring hope and joy to a place of pain and darkness. You see, he paid our debt. The second implication in this word, to tell a side is finished, is three words that we translate it, is when a servant's finished a task. In their culture, they'd have servants and they'd say things like, you know, I, 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 don't, I can't text or email Jeff, but I need to get a message to him. So could you run over there, tell Jeff the message, and come back? Let me know that it's done. Whenever a servant finished a task, the response to the master would be simple. Master, it's done. I finished it. 
I finished what you sent me to do. I've completed what you called me to do. I, the, there was a plan. There was a mission. There was an agenda. There was a direction that needed to happen. And I have done what you asked completely. It's finished. To tell us that. Jesus. Busy about his father's business. Fully aware that from the beginning of time, God had a plan. In the fullness of time comes and makes an incredible, incredible statement. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Paul says it this way. Romans chapter 5, verse 6. Paul says, you see, at just the right time, I love this, while we were still powerless. Some versions say, while we were still weak. We were weak. We couldn't complete it. We didn't have the strength. We couldn't do it. So as you see, at just the right time while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Let's finish right there. The word for just the right time right there. It literally means opportunistic. I love that Jesus says, it is finished. The job is complete. Not I am finished. He doesn't say I'm finished. He's not done. This isn't the end of his work. This isn't the end of his love. This isn't the end of what he is going to accomplish in your life, in my life, through us and in us. But the job of taking the broken pieces of humanity and connecting them back to God. That job, that mission is accomplished. That's crazy good news. That is crazy good news. So here's Jesus saying, hey, there's a plan. And God's got this. It's finished. In just the right time, at just the right moment, 2,000 years ago, John wants us to know Jesus looked down from the cross and said, mission complete. It is done. It is done. That's crazy good news. This thing bottlenecks me sometimes. I have a hard time sometimes remembering and realizing that God's already got this. I think he needs my help all the time. I think I need to interfere and mess with it. Like my job is so critically important to make sure that his mission happens. His mission is accomplished. His love has been demonstrated. Jesus, when challenged about what the work is that's left for us to do, says the work, it's in John chapter 5, he says the work is to believe. That's the only work he left for me. To believe in the one who sent him. God, believing is the work. So, well, you know, don't we have to share the gospel and do all those things? Yeah, that's how we get to partner with the mission. That's how we get to become a part of God's plan. But the work that we have to do is to believe because he already accomplished it. He didn't need my help. I wasn't around. <laughs> he had me taken care of already. God's got this. Look at someone and just say, God's got this. The third one, the third implication in this one word that we translated three words is the idea of a sentence that has been served. You see, in that 
Roman culture, when they had a prisoner, they had a thing that they called a charge of indebtedness. And they would actually, when they threw you into your cell, they would mount this on your cell. They would hammer it into the wall or they would somehow put it up and it would say, this is the crime that you've been charged with and this is the penalty for your, char- your crime. You have to serve your sentence now. And you'd serve your sentence until it was over. And when it was over, you got to come out of your cell. You got to be made free to let go, to be released from prison They would go to that charge of indebtedness, and similar to the financial transaction, they would stamp it with this word to tell us die. It is finished. Your sentence has been served. You are no longer guilty. There's not something that you still owe because of what you did. This isn't some kind of parole, and let's see if you don't make it. You haven't been ankle braceleted to home and not able to to have some kind of measure. You are free to go. You owe nothing. To tell us thou. The sentence has been served. Now, for Jesus on the cross to say, hey, you're free to go. It's pretty powerful. I can only imagine Mary and John and Mary there hearing these words and John trying to hold on to them and what's all implicated by him declaring words of praise and excitement at a freedom to death. Words that immediately let him know the mission was accomplished and words that let him know that we were no longer guilty. That's crazy good news. That's exciting, powerful news paid in full. You know, a million years ago, when I was younger, I did something silly with my vehicle, and I had to go to traffic court and explain myself. It was up in Mill Creek, and so uh, there's a lot of like wealthy people there, so it was like wealthy people traffic court. I've been in not, not wealthy people traffic court, too. It's a totally different experience. <laughs> and so uh, I was up in Mill Creek, and I was... I was there, and I had an idea of how to try to explain what it was I had done to try to get some mercy. Come on now. Because I was working for free as a youth pastor and subsidizing my income with a Hollywood video job, and it wasn't going to cover this current expense from my idiocy. And so I was trying to figure out how to get some mercy. So I was there early because I don't know what I was doing, you know. And I, and I walk in, and I'm standing in the back, and it's not time for this, like the other thing isn't done yet ahead of me before they start talking to all of us knuckleheads. And something was going on in the, in the room, in the courtroom. There was a man and he was called up and he had like, he was prepared. All right. He had like a folder. There was like aerial pictures of things and he was spreading them all out and he was like ready to, to plead his case. And I got kind of the context that essentially he didn't agree with whatever it was that the officer had uh, said that he had done. And so he was there, and he was ready to plead his case. Well, the judge calls for the officer to come and talk, but the officer wasn't there. And so the judge said, case dismissed, and let him go. Now, the strangest thing happened. He was angry. (laughs) The case was dismissed, but he was angry. You know why he was angry? Because he was prepared to plead his case 
he had probably spent some money at a copy machine. Like, this is back when, you, you know, you had to pay, like, a quarter at Safeway to make copies, you know. There was, like, maps. Like, there wasn't Google Earth back then. It was, like, big old map pay. Like, he was ready to plead his case. He was prepared. And so when he got the verdict that he was hoping for but didn't get to plead his case, he couldn't process his success. I was, I was, he was, like, belligerent. He was like, this is ridiculous, and I, he was all mad. And I remember thinking, dude, run. <laughs> Just get out. Like, you're safe. You're like, you made it. Go. Like, take advantage. This is it. This is, like, literally the lottery. I wish this would happen to me. It had me thinking, like, I wonder if I plead not guilty and I show up. Then no, You know, like, I was, I, I was you know, no, it didn't work out for me quite like that, right? But, uh, <laughs> but anyways, uh, that was this, it was this insane moment. But he was frustrated. Why was he frustrated? Because instinctively... We like to feel self-justified. We don't handle success that well when we don't feel like we've earned it. Something inside us internally wants to prove the point, wants to declare that we can do it. We've got this. We figured it out. It's in our power. It's in our ability. We want to feel like that's the case. And Jesus wipes that economy out and says, I took it for you. You're free. You're not guilty. You don't have to pay the price. But we don't process that well because we feel guilty. And we feel like we should pay the price. And we feel like there should be a punishment. And what I read earlier, that the punishment for us was placed upon him. That doesn't seem right. The problem is we didn't understand that the punishment for our rebellion was a price that we couldn't pay. It was a debt that was bigger than we could pay. We couldn't get to a place where we would become a kind of sacrifice that would pay the price. That debt was bigger than us. So instead, we try to move just close enough. And we think, if I could just get close enough, at least I can close the gap between me and Jesus. And that'll be pretty good. Here's the problem. That kind of thinking messes with our head. It makes us sick. Because we begin chasing something that we could never accomplish on our own that God already provided for us. Here's an example. I played in a golf tournament back, uh, gosh, about 2013 or so. And it was one of those really nice golf tournaments. It was, like, sponsored by Mercedes. And uh, it was, like, really, really expensive to put a team in, which means I didn't pay anything. Someone invited me. So <laughs> otherwise, I would never get to play in something like that, right? And so I'm the guy who has, like, none of the nice enough things, but all kind of, like, the lower version of everything. And so at least they let me hang out with them. And then I just kind of, you know, pick up my ball and don't keep my score in those kind of environments. But anyways, at one of the holes, this thing is sponsored by Mercedes. There's a Mercedes right there on the hole. Right? And if you hit a hole in one, you win that Mercedes. And I remember thinking, I'm going to win a Mercedes. Jesus loves me. I'm going to win a Mercedes. I didn't pay anything. I'm going to be the guy that didn't pay anything to be in this expensive golf tournament, and I'm coming home with a Mercedes. Now, the guy I'm playing with is really, really good, like scary, sketchy good, right? Like he made some kind of deal with, you know, somewhere to be that good. And uh, he's really good. And so I get up. I'm first, and then there's four of us going, but uh, I think they all wanted to, you know, get ready and get serious. And I'm like, I'll go up there and hit, right? I hit probably the shot of my life. It is so on target, and it bounces over there, and it rolls up towards the, the pin, and I'm like, 
In reality, it's about five feet away. But come on now, when there's a car at stake, there's a moment where you're just like, <gasps> right? And I'm all excited. My buddy gets up there and he hits, and he's just like a machine. And he hits a shot. I mean, this thing is like butter. Just hits and just rolls right towards the cup. You can see the flag, and we're like, everyone has their hands in the air, and it stops. It's about two feet away. So I walk up there, and there's, you know, they got a crew up there because they got to watch and make sure if it goes in that you didn't just kick it in or something, you know. So we get up there, and I mean, we are close. For a car on the line, this is crazy close, right? That kind of pressure, I mean, we're just, we are right there. I mean, when you're within five feet of winning a Mercedes, I mean, that's pretty awesome. And I remember just thinking, this is pretty close. So I looked at the official right there, and I was like, look how close he is. Look how close I am. They're like, yeah. I remember thinking, so you should give us this car. It's not yours. What do you care, right? So guess who got that car? Nobody. <laughs> Nobody got that car because we didn't hit it in. See, if I were to talk in terms like that, you'd understand that there's no difference between the guy in the sand trap and the guy that's two feet away or the guy that's in the water if the only thing that matters is a hole in one. Yet somehow when it comes to our relationship with God, we think, oh, with disdain at the guy in the sand trap. And oh, the guy in the water, no one, you know, how could you do that to yourself? And somehow we think with pride, look, I'm only five feet away. Like somehow I managed closer and better. And Jesus is looking saying, only a hole in one would justify you. Only a hole-in-one would get you there. Only if you somehow were able to be perfect would it really matter. Yet we think, oh, as long as we got close. And he's like, don't worry. I already got this. You don't have to earn it. I'm not holding against you that you couldn't hit a hole-in-one, that you couldn't get it perfect, that you couldn't nail it. Because I stood upon the cross, and I looked down, and I told you, it's been completed. It's been finished. The Mercedes is you get a Mercedes, you get a Mercedes, you get a Mercedes, right? No, right? It's over. It's done. The price is paid. Victory has already been won. You can't earn it somehow with your behavior, and you can't lose it. You can, can you imagine if God was so small that he would love me less based on something I or somehow I could manipulate him into loving me more. Yet because we're wired that way, we think God's going to do that. Because we're wired that way, we think, well, God, God can't possibly, possibly love me as much as Jake, since Jake can play and sing. Obviously, he must love Jake more, right? God doesn't keep score in our economy that way. He looks down at his kids that he loves and says, it is finished. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says it this way. He says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins. And having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took it away and he nailed it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them and he triumphed over them by the cross. Not guilty, 
Your Honor, how do you plead? I'm not guilty. I'm not guilty. You're not guilty. The price is paid. It is finished. To tell us die. It's a crazy, powerful picture of innocence. So, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? What makes it is finished so controversial we wrestle with it? For some of us, just this idea of our debt being paid for us is really hard to swallow. We feel like, oh, if I just... If I just gave a little more, if I just served a little bit more, I could somehow balance the scale for all of the things I've done and the times I've fled and the times I've rebelled and the times I've... That is nonsense. The cross tells me that's nonsense. Pastor Mike, you don't know what I, what I did. You don't know what I said. You don't know who was hurt and who was affected. I, you're right, I don't know. But again, I know that's nonsense. Well, the job's done. Well, you, you know, but yeah, but I haven't, I haven't done everything yet that I'm supposed to do. Okay, um, that's nonsense. The work is to believe. That's the work. I didn't say it. Jesus said that. Now you get to partner and you get to go on this journey with him and it's exciting and it's fun and lives get transformed and you get to reap what you sow and it's amazing. But the work is to believe. There's no red in your ledger. You say, oh, but there's consequences. There's got to be consequences. Okay. Again, that's nonsense. God made him who knew no sin, sin, so that he could. Here's what's crazy about that passage. He, it, he, it says that it's like he imputes Christ's righteousness to us. So not only, not only does our debt get paid off, but we gain his righteousness. So for 33 years on the earth, he lived sin-free, perfect. His ledger was all in the black, and ours is all in the red. And he says, give me this ledger, and you get to operate out of it. It's like you get to switch accounts with Jesus. That's crazy good news. That's crazy exciting. Some of you are like, I would love to switch accounts with somebody right now, right? You get to switch accounts with Jesus. So Jesus, God treated Jesus how we deserve to be treated. So he could treat you how Jesus deserved to be treated. That's insane. That is good news. That's exciting. That's amazing. That's crazy controversial for Jesus to say. That's what began changing things. Now, next week, we're going to press in a little bit past this, but when a transaction like that happens, most of us like some proof. We like a receipt, right? You ever go to a restaurant, and they don't bring you your receipt, and you're just like, ah, frustrated, and you need a copy of it, and you're like, ah, and then you got to wait. And get your, you're like, when, when a transaction like that happens, we're used to that. We like that idea, right? So the, the bill was paid. Can I get a copy of that receipt? I just need to know. Before I walk out, I got all this stuff in my hand. You know, the gal, she's going she's gonna to want to swipe it. I'm at Costco. I need to be able to show some evidence of that, that receipt. So Jesus makes a pretty profound and controversial statement here. He says, hey, everything has been paid for and completed now. And then something amazing happens. They bury him. And we're like, oh, 
okay, well, where's this thing going, Jesus? But the receipt is coming. The proof is in the pudding. Death can't hold him down. He's going to demonstrate his authority and his power and the victory so that we can put our faith in him. Because if he's still in the grave, our faith is dead. It's meaningless. So next week, snapshot, right? He's going to get controversial one more time. And we're going we're gonna to look at the receipt of payment. But today, I don't know where you're at. As you hear the truth of these powerful words that Jesus declared. But I know if it's anywhere other than believing that your debt has been paid, the mission has been accomplished, and that your sentence has been served, then you're missing the heart and the truth of Jesus. If circumstances in the world have leaned into you to somehow get you off pace there, let me just recalibrate you to the words of our Savior as he hung on the cross for you and for me and said, God's got this. He's got you. He's got you. He's got you. He's got you. God, I am so humbled this morning by a radical, transforming love that you demonstrated by sending your son to pay the price for us. God, I'm sorry for the times that I've carried around the guilt of trying to figure it out on my own. I'm sorry for the times when I've tried to rationalize it on my own and where I've been so, I've smalled you up, God. I've, I've treated you like your love was small and manageable and it's not small or manageable. It's, it's, it's mighty and overflowing and transformative and it changes us. So I pray for healing and wholeness. God, I pray for hearts that just need to know and experience the freedom that comes when we recognize you've got this. It's finished. God, I thank you for the freedom of realizing I, 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 don't, I, I can defer to the master. You're in control. I don't have to figure all this out. The mission is complete. It's not all on me. You've got this. I thank you for the privilege of getting to just partner with you now and experience your best here and, and getting to see your hand move and to see lives change and see others come to that incredible, radical knowledge of your amazing love for us. God, thanks for the cross. Thanks for taking something that that history would have recorded as just one of the most diabolical torture devices ever conceived and redeeming it as a point of faith and love and demonstration that we could be whole, that by your pain, your bruises, your stripes, we are healed and made whole. God, would we live in that reality, I pray? Would you actually not just get it into our head, but into our hearts, the kind of love that you have for us? Would you pour it in us in such a level that it couldn't help but get out of us? God, I think about so many that I know that need to hear about that incredible love. And I just pray, God, next week's a week when people, when people <laughs> will let their defenses down for just a little smidge and they'll come to church. God, I pray I, I don't look back at the people who invited me and think, God, I wish they never did that. I am so incredibly grateful for it. So give us courage and wisdom and keep our eyes up so that we see the opportunity and the harvest that's there. 
pray for God, our ladies that are out of town, give them safe traveling mercies as they come back. Let them be restored and revived and, uh, and energized, God. And I just thank you for your faithfulness. I'm overwhelmed by this incredible love and just want to let you know we love you back. In Jesus' name, amen.